Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 1, 2, and 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, or the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the way that you sent Jesus to teach us how we should live. Thank you so much, God, that whoever we are today and however we arrived at this place today, however it is that we're hearing this verse read over us today, Lord, however we feel, Lord, we understand that you are with us, that because of Jesus we can be assured that you are for us, that we know that the pure in heart will see your face. We want to be those people, Lord, and so we ask you that you would help us as we engage with this text today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, if you've got Bibles with you, you can open them up to Psalm 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll come up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible at all, there's Bibles at the back by those tables. Um, if you don't have a Bible at all and you're just visiting with us or something, grab one of those Bibles, have a look through it, and you can take that home. That's our gift to you. We would love you to have a copy. Uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. This is where I think this beatitude is coming from, and this is where I want to start with today. And, and just so that any of you are concerned, because uh, I can tell right now, this is probably not going to work that well. I'm generally a little more animated than a guy who can stand and hold a hot cup of tea. So I'm going to drink this until it's gone, and then, and then I won't burn myself. You okay? Okay, so it's like second or third caveat of the morning. We'll be okay. Psalm 24, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is something that would have been called or is called, but would have been understood in the time, in that context, as a psalm of entrance. Would have been sang as people came to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. As people entered in and, and filed toward the temple. They would have been coming to the courts of the temple to worship God. They may have actually had this song on their lips. They may have sung this song as they climbed the stairs to ascend the hill of the Lord. They may even have had this song sung over them as they return from battle. And they come back. They're coming to worship God. The hill of the Lord it's talking about is this place. or the, the, the hill, it's where the temple was located. And the temple is the holy place of God's presence. That's the picture that we have to have in mind. And so you've got to imagine walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And you can look up and you can see the temple mount. And you want to go there. You want to go and worship God there. And so you file through the streets and you go to the stairs and you ascend the hill to go to the top where you might encounter God in some sort of fresh way. Verse 6 talks about seeing the face of God, which is an idiom or it's a saying that refers to God's intimate presence. Trimper Longman, Old Testament scholar, said the idiom of the face of God refers to God's intimate presence, which at the time of the psalm was encountered most dramatically in the sanctuary where God chose to make his presence manifest. 
So the, the question that the psalm is asking is, who can come and stand in the presence of God? Who can come and meet with him? Who can seek God? Who can approach him? Well, the psalm asks and answers the question. Just look at it again. Verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who can come and seek the face of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The person who is innocent in their actions and in their mind and in the very motivations of their heart. It's the person who is walking in repentant humility, walking in relationship with God. They've repented of sin. They've been made right with God. They are seeking to live their lives in continuity with his will for them. That's who can ascend the hill of the Lord. That's who can stand in his presence. And the psalm tells us what that kind of person is like when it says they don't lift up their soul to what is false. That means they don't worship idols. It means they are people who worship God and God alone. They don't swear deceitfully, it says. That means that they're people who conduct themselves with integrity. So it means we're talking about a person who is single-mindedly, single-heartedly devoted to God, and they're honest in the way that they live their faith out in every area of their life. It means they're not given to idolatry of any kind, but they worship God and God alone. It means they're not hypocritical in the way that they live out their faith in every area of life. So the big idea here is that this is the kind of person who is holy and totally devoted to God, and they live a life that lines up with that confession. There's no duplicity in them. It's talking about the person who's the same tomorrow when they go to the office, as they are today as they gather with the church. It's talking about the person who's the same when they go on a work trip this week and they travel to a different city. The same as they are when they're among the community of believers that they're, they're a part of. There's no duplicity. There's single-hearted devotion to God, and the actions of life line up with that single-hearted devotion with God. It's evidence that they serve him. And so when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls that kind of person blessed. And he says that they shall indeed be rewarded in their single-minded devotion by seeing the face of God. And so I want to ask today, very simply, what does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? I want to look at three dynamics of the idea of being pure in heart. Uh, three dynamics that I would say the pure of heart understands. Three dynamics of the Christian life that the pure of heart can understand. So first we'll look at single-minded commitment. How the purity of heart is a single-minded commitment. Second, how it's an inside-out transformation. And then third, how you simply cannot do this on your own. It's a single-minded commitment. It's an inside-out transformation that you simply cannot do on your own. So first, let's look at the pure heart, the pure-hearted, who understand that a blessed life is, is really a single-minded commitment. In Matthew 5, 8, you heard it read, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, there was a, a Danish philosopher and theologian from the 19th century. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard said, the purity of heart is to will one thing. To will one thing. To desire one thing. Pure of heart. 
It's to be wholly devoted to the will of God. It's one vision of the kingdom life. It's one king who rules over all, and it's then to be singularly devoted to that idea, the rule of his kingdom. Now, picking up on that same idea in the 21st century, there's two scholars who wrote on this. Uh, They said purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's heart. It's to will one thing, that's God's will, with all of God's heart. And some of this single-mindedness that we're talking about, it comes from the fact that the idea of being pure means to be without mixture. Without mixture. If we talk about pure gold, it's not gold that's blended together with something else to make some kind of alloy. We're talking about purity. Without mixture. The opposite of single-minded purity is double-minded compromise. I want to say that again. The opposite of single-minded purity is double-minded compromise. Let me show you from James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now skip to verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So verse 1 tells us that the the double-minded issue is, is really a picture of passions at war within us. It's desires at war within us that desire two things. There's not a single mindedness, there's a double mindedness. It's the war going on internally, a war over our desires. It's trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. And if you try and live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven, eventually that's going to split you in two. You you can't live that kind of divided life. Verse 8 ends with this call for the double-minded to clean hands and pure hearts, just like Psalm 24. Clean hands and pure hearts. Uh, Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kovalishin in their commentary on the book of James say it is interesting to note that James now uses double-minded in conjunction with the idea of purifying one's heart. Purity applies to that which is unmixed, untainted, and single in its devotion and actions. In calling people to purify their hearts, James calls them to remove everything from their thoughts and actions that show them not single-mindedly pursuing God and his will in the world. So the opposite of single-minded purity is double-minded compromise. Another scholar said, the pure in heart are the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. And who do not try to serve God and the self at the same time. From such, it is impossible that God should hide himself. Remember the promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. Doesn't that sound like the tension of our generation? I don't think it's anything new or else James wouldn't have been writing about it. 
I don't think it's anything particularly new or else we wouldn't have been looking at the people of Israel singing it as they approached the temple. But is it not true of our generation that we are very divided in our desires? I want to serve God, but I also want to develop my understanding of who I am. I want to develop myself. The tyranny of the divided self, in, in lots of ways, it could be the slogan of our cultural moment. We've actually got a word for the divided self. We've got a word for this. It's actually, it's the word anxiety. Worry or anxiety, it literally means having a divided mind. Part of the anxiety of this generation comes from having so many competing narratives of the good life and how to get it and how to be successful and how to be accomplished and how to get your goals. I mean, you can go into any bookstore and you can find a hundred books written on the topic of how to get what you want. That's lauded as a good thing, an admirable goal to pursue your own desires, create your own kind of way, find your own passion. And I'm, I'm okay with those things as long as it's done subservient to the will of God. But typically when we're talking about this, it's done apart from the will of God. It's driven by self. Doesn't that feel like so much pressure? Like if I have to define what meaning is and what fulfillment is in my life, if I have to define that on my own, that means the pressure is on me to define those things, to go out there and accomplish them and to take hold of what's mine. That's a lot of pressure to live with. It creates anxiety. There's a dividedness in our thinking, a dividedness in our will, a double-mindedness in our life. It's the warring passions in our heart that James is talking about. So these warring passions are literally dividing us as individuals. It's the tyranny of the divided self. We live in a generation of people who have been promised more happiness and more fulfillment than any generation ever before. And when those cultural pathways to achieve that happiness and that fulfillment, when they fail, we're left with disappointment and discontentment. That's how you can live in a city that is wealthier than it ever could have imagined, that is safer than we probably would ever think, where we have access to all the basic necessities. That's how we can live in that kind of generation and still be racked with anxiety over the future. Mark Sayers wrote a book called Reappearing Church. In that book, he said, this sense of growing dissatisfaction in our time is growing in proportion to the promises of our Western consumerist culture which has promised to deliver us both social and personal utopia. That's the promise of this generation. Previous ages understood that happiness and lasting pleasure might be elusive, yet we now inhabit a media-drenched landscape in which endless promises of improvement accompany us throughout our lives. These promises are a post-Christian vision of personal renewal. Emptied of the transcendent, we now reach for reduced visions of the good life, from the quest for physical health to the quest for safety and emotional security in an increasingly risky world. What he's getting at is that this desire for fulfillment exists in all people, and it always has, but in general, right now, our culture is trying to find that apart from Christ. Promises have never been higher of what we can have. But the gap between what we expect and what we do actually possess is bigger than we would have ever thought, and that causes anxiety in our lives. 
He calls it a secular vision of personal renewal. A secular vision of personal renewal. So our culture says that this personal renewal comes from finding pleasure and self-created meaning in life. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, and you've maybe bought into some of this narrative that's going on all around us, you can see how that actually divides your mind. How those desires will be at war within you. Like Jesus says, lose your life and you'll find it. But the conversation going on around us is, is that you're number one. It's important that you find what you need and take hold of what's yours. It's antithetical to the kingdom of Jesus. And it causes a divided mind. Then we get filled with anxiety about how we're supposed to live. Here's what it sounds like. This is the cultural narrative of how you should find yourself and take hold of what's yours. Um, Basically, we would have this conversation going on all around us, right? Um, you You were born innocent and happy and whole. And your inner child or your inner self is fundamentally good. Something to hang on to. And then, you, and then you grew up and you had a family and you had some bad experiences. And they placed on you some binding commitments. They gave you an external identity. It was imposed upon you. And then you've got cultural and traditional and religious restrictions that they make us unhappy and they deliver us uh, with this low self-esteem. And so through escaping those binding commitments, those externally given identities, the traditions and the religious restrictions that are placed on us, if we can cast all of those off, then we can discover our inner self, which is good, and it will guide us into happiness. We have to be our true self. That's what the conversation would be. And through finding a missing element in life, that might be your, you know, your life partner. That might be your, your soulmate. It might be your meaningful career that you have given yourself time and years to study that you might enter into. It might be the enjoyable experiences that you see everybody having on Instagram. It might be the material things that you get a hold of. It might be through exercising some additional forms of self-expression. And through doing all of that, then our lives can actually have pleasure and meaning. That's the secular renewal narrative. I would just say, very gently, I would just say, how's that working out? How's that working for you? We live in a generation of people that have been promised more happiness and more fulfillment than any generation before, yet we live in the age of anxiety. And listen, Christ City, I know that I'm preaching to the the choir this morning. I get that. But you swim in these waters seven days a week. Every movie, every song, unless you listen to Kanye's new album, right? It's only Kanye reference today, I promise. Every movie, every song, every novel... Every self-help book, this is the water our culture swims in. And you're in it every day. The social experiment that we are currently in will come crashing down. And when it comes crashing down, there will be an opportunity for people who follow Jesus with a single-mindedness to really offer true and living water to those who thirst for this fulfillment. There will be an opportunity to deliver that, to offer that. So, so, So don't buy the cultural narrative. It's empty. It's an experiment. It is a cultural experiment that we will watch fail because we know what's true. It's different, though, with the blessed pure in heart. The pure in heart are the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. See, purity of heart, the, the singular devotion that we have to Christ, willing what God wills, this is actually the path to salvation and freedom. This is not religious restriction. 
This is the creator of the universe saying, come into relationship with me and I'll teach you what it really means to be human. I'll show you what freedom really looks like. Christ-centered single-mindedness is the antidote to double-minded, anxiety-ridden, divided lives that pull us in different directions trying to find our own versions of happiness and fulfillment. It's really simple. It's really simple. It's just not easy. Just come to Jesus. It's really simple, but it's not easy. Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart know the answer is not double-minded, worldly compromise. The pure in heart understand that the blessed life is a single-minded commitment to him. And then secondly, the pure in heart know that the answer is not actually external. It's not outside-in methods of change and transformation that work. The pure in heart know that it's all about an inside-out transformation. It's not outside-in methods. It's an inside-out heart transformation that we need. So you can't behave your way into a transformed heart. If you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need Jesus. And if you could do it on your own, you'd be a millionaire author. If you, if you figured this out, apart from Christ, everyone would be knocking on your door. If anyone could have done it on their own, it would have been some people that Jesus encounters, and we see him encounter a number of times in the Gospels, there were these meticulously rule-following people called Pharisees. And they sought to obey God and honor God in the way that they lived, and they did so by meticulous rule-keeping. And, and later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tears into them. And he doesn't tear into them because they're trying to honor God by meticulously keeping rules. He tears into them because of the hypocrisy that's evident in their lives. They're double-minded. They're people, these are, the, these are the guys that you see that are, they're, they're, they're clipping off their, their mint garden and their, and their herbs. And they've got their herb garden and they're tithing off of that because they want to honor God. But at the same time, they're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. They're neglecting mercy and justice. So, so you've got this group of people who are hypocritical in the way that they're trying to serve God. And, and Jesus calls them out on it. This is what it says in Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, any hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You gotta think they loved hearing that repeatedly. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, they were all about the external image of purity. They thought that would lead to acceptance before God. They thought that would lead to purity of heart. I think we can, we can hammer on the Pharisees sometimes in, in maybe a way that is not due to them because I think really they were trying to honor God, but what Jesus calls out in them is they were trying to honor God in their own strength. They were trying to honor God in certain ways while neglecting other things. There was a hypocrisy that they were not aware of, and Jesus makes them aware of that hypocrisy here. You can't behave your way into a transformed heart. The Sermon on the Mount is about the orientation of your heart more than it's about a list of rules to follow. 
And the Sermon on the Mount is about the motives of your heart more than it's about the spiritual motions and actions that somebody like a Pharisee would have gone through to gain a good standing in society. And that's why Jesus talks about anger, not only murder. That's why later on in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about lust, not just adultery. That's why he talks about loving your enemies, not just loving your neighbors. He's talking about the motivation of your heart. And you know what? You might go your whole life without people noticing you for your wonderful spirituality, and, and that's actually okay. What you do in secret will be rewarded by the Father, so... You have to ask yourself the question, is my heart set on obedience to God for the pure joy of my relationship with him? Or are my spiritual activities designed to get a pat on the back when somebody sees me doing it? In Matthew chapter 6, which we'll be in next year, Jesus contrasts the person who does spiritual things for the purposes of being seen by somebody else, and he contrasts that with the person who prays and gives and fasts because they genuinely have this, single, this singular desire, single-minded desire for God and his kingdom. So why do you do the spiritual things, if I could categorize it that way, that you do? Why do you read the Bible? It's a basic one. Is it so that you can engage in relationship with God through his word? You can grow in your knowledge of who he is and how he saves you and how he wants you to live? Or is it so you can show up at a community group and be like, are you behind on your plan? I'm not. I've never not been behind on my plan, just so you know. Do you give so that people know how generous you are? Like I said last week, um, are you merciful so that people will notice how merciful you are and one day maybe at the end of your life they'll build a statue for you? He didn't say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall have statues erected in their honor. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, so why are we doing it? What's the motivating factor of our heart? Um, do you fast so that you can be seen as spiritual and fasting by others? Or are you just deeply committed to that engagement with God in a way that says, I hunger after you, Lord, like I hunger after nothing else, and I want to seek your face? For the ones who do that so that they can gain that public acclaim, uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's double-mindedness. It's, it's to the hypocrite, uh, to be a hypocrite, it's, it's opposed to being pure in heart. Outwardly, you're professing one thing. You're saying, Jesus in his kingdom, Jesus in his kingdom, but then inwardly you desire something else. So what's the answer? Well, to be clear, the answer is not waiting until you have an entirely pure motive in doing something, or you, we would never do anything. So we need to know that. I've never had a pure motive in my life. But what I'm asking is that as I'm going about doing things, God, would you purify my heart? Would you purify my heart? You can't just stop and say, okay, I'll wait for purity of heart. And then, and then eventually you die. <laughs> and then you have a pure heart. No, you can't do that. You have to live a life. And in practicing those things and moving forward in them, I said you can't behave your way into purity of heart, but as you behave your way into the faith and in the faith, you can ask God to purify your heart as you're doing it. Do you see the difference? The answer is not apathy or, or on the other hand, I guess, despair. 
but it's actually just constantly examining the interior space in our life. Trying to ask God, just see what, what mixed way is within me. What impure thing is within me, God? What in me and what am I doing that is not directed toward Jesus and his kingdom? Right, the good news this morning is that Jesus has made a way and that he has dealt with our impurity and he is able by his spirit to transform us more and more into those who are the pure of heart. And then, and only then, the outward expressions of that obedience fall in line. So how do we get it? Right, if it's not our works, if it's not something external, how do we get this? Well, I said first that the pure of heart understand this blessed life is a single-minded commitment. I said second that the pure in heart know that it's all about an inside-out transformation. And then third, we're going to look at this, the pure of heart know they cannot do it on their own. Purity of heart has to do with our actions perfectly aligning with the desires of our heart, or or the desires of our heart perfectly aligning with the will of God. It's, It's willing God's will with all of our being. And so the question is, And I I don't want to just gloss over this. Are you sure you want this? We've got to ask ourselves this question. Do you want this? You can become the blessed pure of heart, um, but it does mean coming face to face with the ways you've missed it, and sometimes that hurts. Mark Twain said, everyone is a moon. And has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. Carl Jung was a psychologist, psychiatrist, psychiatrist, I think. He said people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. So I want to ask you before I tell you how, do you want that? Because I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I think the rewards of entering into a relationship, asking God to purify your motives and purify your heart. I think, I think the rewards surpass every other reward that could ever be experienced. But you've got to know that it's probably painful. The scriptures say that while we were still in our sin, we were still impure, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And he reaches across the ages and he touches the broken hearts of all of his children and all of his followers. And he he carries that pain and brokenness and impurity with him to the cross. The deep impurity of my heart. Jesus paid for that upon the cross. Purely and singularly devoted to the task that was given to him by the Father. He went to the cross. His will aligned with the will of his Father. His obedience in view of the purity of his own heart. He goes to atone for our sins. I just want to say this to you, Christ City. He's not afraid of your impurity. He died to make you clean. He's not afraid of the impurity of the city of Vancouver. And we walk around and go like, oh, impure over there. And it's impure over there. And Jesus is just going, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. He's not afraid of it. He's come to cleanse us from it. We're going to see later on in Matthew chapter 5 that we're to be salt and light in the world. Jesus shines light. Jesus purifies. Jesus preserves. That's our call. He's not afraid of your impurity. He reached out once and for all and dealt with it. 
The author of Hebrews puts it like this, Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of goats, uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made whole. He's perfected through one act. It's final, it's finished. We trust it, we believe into it, we receive it as a gift. So no, you cannot do this on your own, but there's nothing that's stopping you from entering into the pure-heartedness that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. The work has already been done for you. You just need to enter in through a relationship and abiding in that relationship with Jesus. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher. He said, we attain purity of heart, not merely by the imitation of Christ, but by the incorporation into Christ, the Christ who has perfect purity of heart. See, our purity of heart is based on our abiding relationship with him. We dwell in him. We make our home in him. It's receiving all that he has done. It's living into the fullness of all that he has done to make a way for us to stand before the throne of God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Those with pure hands, their clean hands and a pure heart. He's made a way for us to come. And when you're in Christ, this is the promise for you. Revelation 22. John has a heavenly vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And here in verse 4, we have the greatest promise in all scripture. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The prize for the blessed pure of heart is that they will see his face. And I think that is the promise in scripture that encompasses every other promise. What do you have in that intimate presence of God? Do you have healing? Absolutely. Do you have wholeness? No. Like we could never fathom. Do we have peace? No. Peace like we've never thought it possible. Do we have the wounds of our heart bind up, bound up, bind, binded up, sewed up, healed? Yes. Do we have our guilt and shame removed? Yes. Yes, they shall see his face. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall. Future promise. It's a future promise to those who are in Christ. But I want you to know, all through the Beatitudes, that we've been talking about the future promises that are attached with each one. What we've been saying is that you can take that future promise and you can import it into the present moment here and now. There's a future promise where it's actualized. 
where we will see his face. Revelation 22, verse 4. We will see his face. But what we can do is we can appropriate that now and draw it into our present moment. We can live our entire life in light of his glorious presence with us. It's what they called in Latin living quorum Deo, living your life before the face of God. It changes every single circumstance. It changes your loneliness, it changes your pain, it changes your sorrow. It changes the way that you understand your past. It changes the way that you understand your future. It changes the sense of guilt and shame that you have even in the moment. It changes all of that when you know that you're standing and living your life before the face of God. What hope and what peace and what joy we can have now in this moment. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.